Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. Thank you for everyone who has left a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes for the My Peace Corps Story podcast, because as of recording, I now have 100 reviews with an average of five stars. Thank you very, very much to all of you who have left a review. And speaking of those who have left a review, I would like to give a special thanks to the most recent review from Annika, who writes, I love this podcast. Had my interview... A week ago, five stars. I love listening to new episodes every week. I had my Peace Corps interview last week, and I'm anxiously and impatiently waiting to hear back. My interviewer in D.C. told me she actually met you before, uh, after I told her I listened to this podcast. Listening to this podcast makes me incredibly excited for a Peace Corps experience of my own. Thanks for working so hard on this podcast, Tyler. It has helped me get a better understanding of what Peace Corps service entails, the good and the not so good. Keep it up. Well, thank you very much and best of luck. Hopefully you're not kept waiting for too long and maybe one day I can help tell your Peace Corps story. Speaking of Peace Corps stories, this week I talk with Betsy Gallery, who served in Cameroon starting in 1963. She has some amazing stories, uh, all sort of revolving around art, but you guys are really going to enjoy uh, hearing about her experience in the 60s and continuing into the 70s and adventures all around Africa. Without further ado, here is the latest episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my peace course peace course my peace course my peace course story story story. My name's Betsy Gallery, and this is my peace course story. Hey Betsy, how are you doing? I'm doing very well today. Well, I'm I'm excited to to hear your story uh, because of of when you served in the Peace Corps. Uh, I I served in uh, Africa, uh, but you know. Very much separated from from your service, uh, fifty years difference, um, and I feel that a lot of in a lot of ways, I think the stories you're going to tell, I'm going to be able to connect with. But you had an experience that was uh, truly unique, uh, so I'm very excited to to hear about your Peace Corps service. What country were you in? Uh, I served in Burkina Faso. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I was uh, I visited there. When it was called, what was it called before? The Upper Volta. Uh, Upper Volta, yes, yes. I was in Ouagadougou, but we'll get into that later on. <laughs> I didn't even know that you had have been to Burkina Faso, so definitely excited to hear uh, how you ended up there and, and, and talking about that. But start off by letting the listeners of the podcast know a, a little bit about yourself and where you served in the Peace Corps. Well, I was in the first group 
to go to East Cameroon in 1963, which I believe was the second year of the Peace Corps in general. I remember our first night there in Boya, which was the English-speaking part of Cameroon, where we had a wonderful reception with the then uh, Vice President Foncha. And uh, my first cultural shock came when we were served the appetizers, which were extremely spicy hot, and palm wine, which was, to our palate, quite disgusting. So that was... <laughs> That was an eye-opener for the uh, the first evening there. Uh, then I was sent to Kong Samba in the French-speaking part of Cameroon, up in Bamaleki territory. So okay. that, and I taught at a teacher's college there. I taught English as a second language. There was one other volunteer in town, um, but we didn't live near each other, and we didn't really spend much time together. Uh, I also volunteered to teach art at the mission. There were a bunch of French nuns and one American nun who was an English teacher, and she had no clue about art, and I've always been an artist. So I volunteered to teach her classes, from which I have the art that they did uh, saved, and I'm now a mosaic artist, so I made mosaics of a couple of the drawings that my students made in 1963. Wow. And, and what, a, what an interesting thing to, to hold on from your service, um, art that students that you worked with made. When Before you joined the Peace Corps or in just thinking about Peace Corps prior to your service, was there any overarching reason of why you felt compelled to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer, to serve in something that, as you said, was was brand new? Because when I was thinking about Peace Corps service, I got to look at a at a history of, of people like yourself who, who have done it, so I had a good sense of what I was getting into. Uh, but you were embarking on something that was extremely new. Yes, I always was very adventurous. That came from my mother, actually, who was on her way to China when the uh, Chinese Revolution started, or some revolution. And so myself and several of my sisters also followed. I have a sister who went to Ethiopia, another sister who did an internship in archaeology in Syria, my brother went to Ghana, and, and so forth. So adventure was part of our family, although we were a very uh, middle-class family in, uh, in the north of Chicago. But I wanted adventure. I always dreamed, ever since I was a kid, of going to Africa and whatever it was that happened there. So I was ready to go. I actually had wanted to go to Tunisia, because I knew a little bit about Tunisia, and when they said, well, we have this offer for you to go to East Cameroon, I said, East Macaroon? Where's that? You know? <laughs> uh, so I was totally ignorant about it, but I'm delighted that I went there instead of Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And before going to Cameroon, uh, 
did you have any preconceived notions of, of what you were going to experience or um, were you just fully entrenched in that adventure mindset and just ready to uh, explore the experience? It was more the adventure mindset. I was ready to go to Africa. It was my dream. But I don't recall, this is you know, more than 50 years ago, whether I actually studied up about the area. I know we went to Overland to train, and the other volunteers who were with us trained not only for Cameroon, but some went to Gabon and maybe other West African areas. So I don't think we specifically got a whole bunch of of training about the culture. We were trained mostly to speak French because that was the lingua franca there. Mm -hmm. And did you have any background in French prior to starting your Peace Corps training? I had studied uh, French in college and uh, Spanish in high school, but French in college. So I did have a little advantage there, mm-hmm. but it was it was fun to learn that language and and now of course I, I speak French with an African accent, which is <laughs> amusing to people. Um, <laughs> I do as well. Uh, so it's always interesting when I speak French to people. That's something that they remark of. Where did you learn French? And it's like well <laughs> I learned I learned it in Burkina Faso. Like oh that explains it. Yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, what exactly was your community like? Um, when I think of, you know, Peace Corps service in Africa, um, I was thinking of, you know, living in a hut, living in a remote village, and I got an experience very close to that um, 50 years after you. What was your service like? What was your community like? Well, our community was, it was a town, a medium-sized town, and I did not live in a hut. I thought maybe I, I would, but I lived in your basic cinder block home that had running water and hot water and a stove. And I was right across the street from a very expensive shanty town. So I had more or less uh, Western kind of uh, amenities. And I also had what they called then uh, a houseboy. It was actually an adult man, but it was it was a paid uh, servant who came and bought food and cooked for me and cleaned and that sort of thing. So I don't know if uh, if that was just early Peace Corps that they didn't know how much we could take or <clears throat> I don't know what that reason was, but I think that other people didn't live quite as, as well as that. Mm-hmm. And you you talked about some of your your projects that you did as a volunteer. Uh, were you primarily doing art, or, or what exactly were you doing day to day? Well, I was assigned to to teach English at the local teachers' college, which that was my <clears throat> excuse me Peace Corps assignment. But I did take on teaching art at the mission. Uh, I, I think I mentioned this before because the uh, the nun who was assigned to teach art was an English teacher and didn't know anything about art, and <laughs> I did. So I, I taught, and we had very few materials. So one of the things that I taught them was to use crayon resist. So they had crayons, and they would make drawings, 
and then we would coat it with ink. And of course, the wax and the crayons resisted the ink, so it gave a kind of uh, stained glass window effect, which was very attractive. And those are the drawings that I have at home. I only actually wound up saving two. Um, others I had were lost in Spain when I was there. I was married to a Spaniard who actually had been born in Africa, but that's another part of the story we could get into later. Wow, it sounds like you, you have uh, so many stories. Uh, do you have um, a few that you would like to share with us? Uh, a, a favorite Peace Corps memory or several pa- favorite Peace Corps memories? Is any of those stories that you love either telling or just thinking about when you reminisce about your experience? Well, uh, it was surprising. One day I took some of my records, which were the uh, 33 vinyls, to the teacher's college to uh, show them what American jazz was like. And they were really thrilled that I was going to do that. But their conception of what American jazz was was quite different from, say, Thelonious Monk, which I took. And it was very um, puzzling to them the uh, the real American jazz, because, of course, then, as is now, um, African music was mostly high life, which I think is wonderful. It's one of my favorite genres of music is, is high life, but that has nothing to do with American jazz. Um, another very fond memory is going up to Fumban, which was the center in Cameroon of the art of the lost wax bronze casting. And I still have a couple of pieces here that I bought in Fumban during my Peace Corps service. I actually bought a number of pieces of African art there. Um, One particular purchase involved going to a very small village, and as I was coming up the hill, I saw these very large women in the market with all their goods in front of them, but it didn't look like they were really sitting on the ground. And it turned out that they were sitting on these stools, which were about five or six inches high and very tiny. And I bought them because they were beautiful carved stools. And in that same village, the chief, uh, his father had just died. and He inherited all his father's wives, among other things, and was a little uh, pressed for money. So I wound up buying a number of of African artifacts from him, including a wonderful uh, Bamoon mask, which I have in in my home here in, in Santa Barbara. So that sort of thing was always intriguing. And another very fond memory is a motorcycle ride on the Ring Road in Bamenda province. And it was very beautiful uh, waterfalls pouring off of cliffs and uh, rainforests. And it was uh, a memory that I, I still have. And I'm not very fond of motorcycles, but that was, that was a great trip. That was with a, on the back of a motorcycle that another volunteer was driving. Wow, th- those are some uh, amazing memories and 
it sounds like you one you picked up some beautiful pieces of art uh, while you were there. Were you able to spend time with some of the the craftsmen and women who were were making this art and see some of these pieces be made? You know, I don't recall seeing the actual pieces being made, which is too bad, because uh, subsequent to that, I, I've become a full-time artist and realized that I, I missed a lot of opportunities back then. Uh, you know, I was young and probably not as, as curious about that sort of thing. But later on in life, I became a mosaic artist and was able to see how the glass smalty is made in Venice, uh, spending time at a foundry there. So I would love now to go back to Pumban, and I imagine they're still doing that sort of thing. It would be that was a lost opportunity that I, I realized late that I missed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's only so much time, and it's often yeah, looking back, thinking, man, I really wish I I had done that, but I. I can I can definitely tell that you made the most of uh, the various other opportunities with that uh, motorcycle trip around the Ring Road and, and other things. Yes, and as a matter of fact, uh, my I, I, later on, uh, much later after graduate school, after the Peace Corps, I met a Spaniard at the University of Chicago who had been born in what was then called Fernando Po which is the little volcanic island off the west coast of Cameroon in what I call the armpit of Africa, from the shape of Africa there. So I was in the Peace Corps in 63 when he was doing his Spanish military service on the island of Fernando Po, which is now uh, Equatorial Guinea. And we didn't meet until we were in graduate school it, the University of Chicago. So that was interesting. And he also was interested in African art. So we ended up in Madrid with quite a large collection of, of beautiful African art. Wow. Do you, of, of all this African art, do you have a piece that really stands out to you? Uh, and is there a story behind it of why why it stands out to you and if it's just its its beauty or the memory of how you acquired it? Well, the, as I said earlier, the, the mask that I bought from that chief who had inherited his father's aging wives and needed money, so he was selling off some of the uh, tribal art and I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, so that, that was kind of a good and interesting memory. Mm -hmm. And your, your time as a volunteer, uh, did you feel uh, connected to your community? Did you feel like you were able to at sometimes consider yourself as a member of the community or were you always on the outskirts, always an outsider? No, I was part of the community. It was mixed because at one point I also had friends who were some of the Armenian colonialists uh, who were kind of on the wrong side of, of political correctness. And yet 
I had uh, an African boyfriend. So I was in kind of both sides of the community. But I remember going to parties with when I was the only uh, white woman and there was dancing and music and uh, it was wonderful. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed that. And uh, one summer I was in Yaoundé, the capital, uh, for reasons I can't remember, and I shared a house with an African woman. And actually we had to share the same bed. And that was just, you know, how it was then. So that was an interesting way of really living with the people in the community. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, since I had this kind of shanty town living across the street from me, uh, whenever I had uh, a major shock, like a snake in the house, I would run over with a bottle of wine and say, okay, this is for whoever will come and get <laughs> that snake out of my house. <laughs> Um, and another time was this, nobody could help with this, um, army ants came into the house, but it was just a column about an inch and a half or two inches wide. And they came in and kind of cleaned out all the insects from the kitchen and came in one door and went out another. And that was the end of it. So uh, things like that were our, our memories that stick with you, you know, because they're so unusual. Mm-hmm. And were you able to keep in touch uh, with the people that you met during your Peace Corps service uh, over all these many years? Uh, not really. Um, I, I can't remember why, but the only person that I had any contact with was this um, this former boyfriend who, when I was living in Madrid called me, I think he was in France at the time, um, and we had a nice conversation on the phone, and he's now part of the um, political scene there, uh, part of the government, I believe. Um, I I have his name, um, if you're interested in me repeating his name. Uh, It's Paul Fuda Onambele, and I don't know exactly... What position he's in, I, I actually tried to contact him a couple of years ago through the Internet, but was not able to to do that. Mm-hmm. I also I went back several times to Africa uh, because my um, Spanish husband was actually a formal, former colonialist, and so we would go back now and then and... I was at the uh, New Year's Eve party the night before Equatorial Guinea Guinea became a free state, not longer, no longer a, a colony. So that was an interesting evening. Uh, and I've been to Ghana, and uh, I went to. Ghana to visit my brother, who was in the Peace Corps a number of years after me. And then I hitchhiked from Accra to Abidjan in the Ivory Coast and then took a train up to what was then Upper Volta, which was the country you were in, Burkina Faso. And in the market in Ouagadougou, 
I ran across some wonderful, wonderful bronzes that had been these extremely heavy necklaces that women would wear Mm -hmm. that were, you know, they were permanent. You could never take them off until the person died. But apparently they had been forbidden by the missionaries who went because, for example, if the women were in a canoe and the canoe tipped over, uh, they would take the women to the bottom of the river. So the the, um, missionaries, at least that's the story I heard, forbade the women to wear these necklaces. But now I have above my fireplace a a beautiful collection of them, which I bought Mm -hmm. in Wagadougou in the market. And, and I know exactly what uh, necklaces you're referring to. I have, I have seen them. I've seen seen them in the market and seen them being worn uh, by people in in my community. Uh, so what a, what an interesting connection that we we share that uh, both having been in Burkina Faso. I, I have another interesting uh, experience from Ouagadougou. I was there by myself, and it was New Year's Eve, and I was walking down the street, and I looked ahead, and I thought I saw somebody that I had gone to graduate school with, and I couldn't believe it, so I said his name out loud with his back turned to me, because I figured if it wasn't him, he won't turn around, and it was. It was him, (laughs) and I spent New Year's Eve with him and his wife, and his wife was pregnant, and was due to leave to have her baby in Europe. And so she came and stayed with me in Spain and had her baby in Madrid. Um, Her husband was uh, working for the World Health Organization, and I think he was one of the people that helped eradicate, I think it was polio or smallpox, I can't remember which, uh, at that time. (laughs) Wow. Lots lots Uh, of links. Lots of interesting links. Yeah, of of all the places to run into someone you know, uh, Wagadugu is not on the top of the list. Not ever, really. <laughs> yeah. And so you've made a mention at least once about uh, sort of <laughs> colonialism, referring to your your husband, and, and then uh, in your written responses, you had noted a few different things. What was it like being in Africa when you were there? Because uh, just doing a quick Google search tells me that Cameroon gained its independence uh, January 1st, 1960. So just three years before you would be there as a Peace Corps volunteer, you'd visited Ghana and it was, you know, had, had recently gained its independence in the 50s, Burkina Faso. So you were there in a time when these countries as self-identifying independent entities were, were rather young. Uh, what what were you able to see or sense um, being there when you were? Well, yeah, it was a very transitional period for these countries. And there was uh, a lot of uh, separation between the colonials and, and the um, Africans. Um, and I experienced some of that when uh, I was in Yaoundé. I actually met... Uh, a Frenchman that became my boyfriend at the time. And we would go to these wonderful discotheques, but uh, they were called like 
le blanc et le noir, you know, black and white, where there was a mixture. So it was in the entertainment and and dancing and fun things that they would mix very freely. But then in the rest of their life, there were not social situations where they mixed. And I remember um, after I left the Peace Corps and went back to Chicago and went to the, uh, oh no, it was later, I got another master's degree in art therapy and then I did an internship in Watts and my supervisor was an African-American woman and I remember telling her about some of my experiences and the colonial uh, husband that I had, which I was no longer married to at the time, but it was very um, difficult for me because I had been part of this so-called colonial uh, family. My um, mother-in-law had been the very first white um, female teacher in Santa Isabella on Fernando Po. It's now called Malabo, the name of the town, not Santa Isabella anymore. So I had all these connections to colonialism as well as to my experience in Africa. So I, I felt very conflicted in at that time uh, in Watts. But that was that was an interesting connection again to Africa. Um, lots of lots of my connections somehow wind up leading back to Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just what what an interesting lens to to see um, Africa through, having been there when you were, and I think it just adds so much more depth that. Uh, sometimes maybe current volunteers tend to forget uh, because when when volunteers who are serving there now sort of think, oh, well, they gained their independence 60 years ago, 70 years ago, it's very, very different. Uh, and maybe they don't as readily see the remnants of colonialism, uh, but for you, they were ever-present. They were indeed, yeah. Um, I was going to say something else, and I, I, I'm drawing a blank right now. It'll come to me. Oh, I mm-hmm. was going to ask you if you've ever been to the Ivory Coast. Because uh, I remember when I went to um, Abidjan, uh, the Hotel Ivoire mm-hmm. had a basement full of African art that they sold. And I didn't buy from them because it was at you know, tourist prices. And I would go out to the market, but this was many years after my Peace Corps service. I went back, you know, to visit my brother in Ghana, then I went to Ivy Coast. But I went to the market and I was running out of money for buying art, African art. So I had this one trader that I was really interested in this stuff. I said, well, bring all this stuff up to my uh, hotel room and I'll trade you for things. And so there we were in my hotel room. On one of the beds were all the African art that he was selling. On my bed was all of my clothes that I had brought. (laughs) And so basically I exchanged uh, fancy underwear for African art because I had run out of money to buy things. That was another kind of fun African adventure. That is an 
absolutely amazing story. Uh, I, I technically have, have been uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, but only I just crossed the river from Burkina just to say that I've been in the country. I, I drank a beer uh, and then went 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 back because uh, we weren't really uh, allowed at the time. We weren't supposed to to uh, be in the especially the northern region. Uh, but I I broke the rules just so I could say that I'd been there. Oh, and so you never did you ever go down to Ghana? Um, I did go down to Ghana. Um, so I did a a trip down to Ghana. Went to uh, Cape Coast and then to a, a small uh, beach town village called Buswa. Spent about a, a week and a half in Ghana. Uh, so that was a, a a great experience and just seeing such a different culture so close to um, the country that I was serving in. And I remember going from Ouagadougou back down to Accra, and I took a taxi. In those days, you know, you could take a taxi across the whole country. And we came straight down the middle of Ghana. But when we got towards the border with Ghana, it was like after five o'clock and there was this dirt road with a wooden arm barrier coming down and that was the border. But it was five o'clock and so the border was closed and they wouldn't (laughs) let us around this little swinging arm. So we had to basically put blankets on the ground and sleep on the ground all night. And uh, in the middle of the night, a herd of goats came running over us. And the next <laughs> morning we got up and dusted ourselves off and got back in the taxi and drove down to Accra. I, I hadn't thought of that memory in a long time. but So I did the whole loop from Accra to uh, Abidjan, and a train up from Abidjan to Waga, mm-hmm. and then from Waga down to Accra. So it was a full circle. Yeah, and uh, I I know of that train because uh, it goes through Babu Jalasso, uh, which yeah. was the, the the closest sort of big city to where I was. I had lived about an hour and a half uh, west uh, of Bobo. Oh, yeah. And the train with the windows open and people selling you food whenever mm-hmm. the train slowed down kids running along trying to sell food through the windows yep do they still do that uh they still do that for the the trains buses and everything that's that was one of my favorite things sort of hanging out the window and buying sugared peanuts and bananas and different drinks uh, that's the the only two times that i ever got um like extremely ill <laughs> was from buying yeah. uh, drinks out out of the window of a bus yeah i can imagine and and the pineapples the pineapples in uh cameroon were so incredible they would put them on a stick you know and chop off the mm-hmm. uh outside and you just eat it like a big popsicle and they were as sweet as they could be yeah, it food, kind of. Actually, it, I I like the food a lot. Um, mm-hmm. When it wasn't so hot, you couldn't taste it. But <laughs> the um, groundnut stew, which they called, uh, you know, poulet au sarrachid. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. I love that. I just really enjoyed that. But palm wine, I could never get used to. Did you ever try palm wine? Uh, I did try try palm wine. Yeah, it definitely has a. 
a funk to it that you can't quite get over. But we had a, a local beer in my community uh, that was made from either millet or sorghum. And that was definitely much more palatable than palm wine. And then did you ever have like the palm liquor? They would then take the wine and then distill it? I don't think so. I think that, you know, after the first couple of tries, um, I just didn't want to try again. There was a big difference, though, when it was really fresh and when it had uh, matured, so to speak, a bit. It was pretty disgusting when it was matured. Oh, yeah. It gets it gets stronger and funkier um, the older it gets. Yeah, indeed it did. Well, it, it sounds like you had a lot of... of great, amazing experiences um, from just your, your Peace Corps service and then continued travels around Africa. Um, is there anything that you struggled with or a, a, a least favorite memory uh, from your service? Well, I, I do have a very least favorite memory, which uh, I regret to this day. Uh, I figured out after a while that my houseboy had been stealing money from me. And I went to the police and we set up this kind of sting operation where I we wrote on the bills and so that we could identify them and then we wound up tracing the bills to a place where this uh, person had bought something and so that can you know convinced us that he had stolen it and so he was taken down to the police station and I, I heard the police beating him in another room, which um, I have regretted ever since, uh, not knowing that this was going to happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I still remember that and I remember, you know, what, what happened to him afterwards, I don't know. So uh, that, was a, that was an issue for me. Yeah, I, I can only only imagine just hear, hearing those sounds of of someone being beat because of something that, that you did. That you know, I mean, you it, you were doing the right thing. You were someone was stealing from you, and you reported yeah. them. But but never would you have thought that it would precipitate in, into this that scenario. Yeah, unintended consequences, obviously. My only other uh, connection with the local city officials was apparently uh, at one point I couldn't stand the straw bed that I had. And so for some reason I had to go down and petition for a new bed to this uh, official place. And they had me like wait for four hours to speak to this person about getting a new bed. So after that I was kind of through with the cops. (laughs) Uh, I I do not blame you. Uh, now, is there anything that you miss about Peace Corps? It sounds like you definitely kept a lot of the um, ideals and uh, of of Peace Corps service alive um, as you continued on uh, after service. But is there anything that you miss? Um, I have continued with a sense of adventure, so. No, I I don't miss anything, but I am grateful for that early experience because I've gone on to um, run an ecotourism lodge in Costa Rica. Um, I had my own business in Madrid when I was there for 13 years. 
Um, I've traveled widely, and I'm basically fearless about traveling on my own. And I think I got that from from Cameroon and from my subsequent trips to Africa. That I've I've never. I mean, I hitchhiked from Accra to um, Abidjan. And when I tell people that, they said, oh, you hitchhiked? I said, yeah, I, I hitchhiked in Africa all the time. I was never afraid to hitchhike in Africa. I would never do it in the United States. It's much too dangerous here. And conditions may be different now, but back then, it was very unusual to see a white woman standing by the side of the road. And you know that uh, gesture that they make when they're asking for something with one hand on top of the other? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know that gesture? I do. Okay, well, I would stand by the side of the road and make that gesture, and and uh, people, Africans and Europeans would stop and give me a ride, and, and I was never concerned about that at all. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you, you learned during your Peace Corps service that you've carried with you? Um... So much. Uh, it's hard to say. I'm, I can uh, ask you what your name is in uh, in one note. <clears throat> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, what can you say? What did you learn? I learned everything. I broke out of my middle class, educated uh, life and was thrown into another world. You learn everything. Um, I definitely feel that way as well, that uh, it's hard to answer that question. It's like, well, there's there's very little that I didn't learn from exactly. Peace Corps service. Yeah. And now I have sort of more of an understanding about world politics, uh, knowing where that continent has been and how difficult it is to achieve parity in the world. Uh, I know from experience what it was like and how hard it is for them to, to move on. I mean, they learned certain ways from their colonial occupiers and some of the vices they've perpetrated and some of the virtues they've taken advantage of and uh, it must be culturally very confusing also. Mm-hmm. So that, that's about it. Well, Betsy, I've had uh, an, a great time listening to your stories and your experiences, not only in, in Peace Corps, uh, but this sense of adventure that you've maintained um, ever since Peace Corps. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I need to go travel more now. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've done some, uh, but just hearing about all your experiences and I, I, I can almost guarantee that you just scratched the surface, you know, just alluding to being in Madrid and the business you had there and running the ecotourism lodge. I want to ask questions about all of those things. And it just uh, has me very excited. And I hope that people who are listening to this, who are maybe in their service or starting their service can see 
what an amazing life of adventure can can happen afterwards um, after Peace Corps service and using Peace Corps service as a foundational base for figuring out how how to travel and explore the world um, with open eyes. Exactly. It it takes you out of that limited educational box that we have here in the States, and it opens the world to you. And I know, talking to other people who have never been anywhere, that it causes a cultural broadening that is absolutely incomparable. It's wonderful. No matter what happens, you learn so much about what you're capable of, and the good and the bad, uh, I would recommend it to everybody. As would I. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your day uh, to share some of your stories and experiences with me. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you get a new episode every single Tuesday when I release them. If you know someone who served in the Peace Corps or you yourself served in the Peace Corps and have a story to tell, please reach out. I'm always looking for new stories, uh, especially new countries that I haven't told, like Betsy's from Cameroon. Thank you very much for spending some time with me, and until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?